Matthew 24, verse 36, up to and including chapter 25, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You would think, after being out of school so long, I wouldn't keep having this dream. It's the student dream. It's the test dream. Have you had that dream? Where you go and you find out, or maybe you knew, somehow in the dream, that you're to take a test. And you realize in the dream that you have made zero preparation for the test. And you're not sure why, and that's one of the frustrating parts of the dream, because it's not clear if you knew about the test or not, but, but you should have been able to make preparation, and you didn't. There are other variations of that. There's the preacher version of that as well, and I have that dream as well. I, I dream about the worship service, that we come together, and, and I made no preparation for the worship service, and it's chaos, and I can't get things going. Or worse, I get up to speak, and I didn't prepare, and I have nothing coherent to say, and I try, but nothing coherent will come out of my mouth. I understand that there's the musician version of that as well. 
sit down at the piano or pick up the guitar or whatever it is and try to play and, and nothing comes because there was no preparation made. It's a frustrating dream. Am I the only one who has that sort of dream? Yeah, okay. Um, some people are nodding. Other people are, are, uh, are saying they've had that as well. But be that as it may, um, there's something much more important than a test or a worship service or a sermon or a musical piece for which we need to be prepared. And we have warning beforehand so we know about it, so that we can be prepared. And that is what these three parables, and there are three parables as well as a historical illustration in this section that I read. And they all emphasize the same sort of thing, and that is to be prepared, to be ready. Now, there are different ways to count the parables, but there's a neat way of counting them that some have presented, that back in chapter 13, where we've spent our time up to this point in Matthew, there are seven parables of the kingdom. And then, in these latter chapters, there are seven more parables, and they're also about the kingdom, but they're about the the completion of the kingdom. So in the first parables, it's about the nature of the kingdom. And then these latter parables, as we're drawing to an end of the gospel, are about the completion, the consummation, the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. Now, the three parables um, are actually, they come after a long answer of Jesus to a double question. And so we need to go back a little further. We need to go back to the beginning of chapter 24 and look at verse 3. It says that they were leaving the temple in verse 1, and then they point out to Jesus the beautiful buildings of the temple. And so he says that not one stone will be left on another stone in verse 2. And then they go to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples have a question. They just heard that he said the temple is going to be knocked down completely. And they come to him privately with a double question. Two questions. They say to him in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple, when the temple will be knocked down. And, second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So there are two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And the other question is, when, what will be the sign of your coming, which indicates the end of the age? Now, he then talks in chapter 24, and he gives an answer to these two questions, and it's a difficult chapter because sometimes it's not clear, is he talking about the temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD, or is he talking about something in the future, the signs of the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age? But these parables focus on the second question. They focus on the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age. And you notice that in in verse 36, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And the emphasis of these, this whole section is on our ignorance, our ignorance. It's repeated a number of times. Verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Verse 42 of chapter 24, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then the last verse of Verse 13 of chapter 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And this is an interesting argument. And the argument is you need to be prepared because of your ignorance. You need to be prepared at all times because you do not know when this day will come. Now, um, the clear teaching of the New Testament is that Christ has come and will come again. 
That's what the New Testament teaches. Christ has come, and he will come again. And that is the universal confession of the Christian church throughout all the ages. We're going to be looking at some creeds on Tuesday night in our Together Tuesday time, and you will find in those creeds that it confesses that Christ has come and what he has done when he came, and it confesses that he is coming back again. When he came, he came to live, to die, to rise again for the salvation of all who will put their faith in him. That's why he came the first time, to bring salvation, to secure salvation for all who will trust and follow him. At his second coming, he will do what these parables indicate. And that's what we'll find out here. What will he do at his second coming? Now, these parables, uh, the first one, uh, well, actually, before we get, there's kind of an introduction to that, before we get to the first parable, there is an argument. It's a how much less argument. We oftentimes find how much more arguments, but here's a how much less argument. And it's kind of a shocking one. Verse 36 of chapter 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. That's pretty surprising, isn't it? But even more surprising than that, he says, nor the Son, speaking of the Son of God, speaking of the Son of Man. And this is one of those very difficult things to figure out theologically. How is it that the omniscient, the all-knowing Son of God does not know But we have to attribute this to the fact that he took on flesh and became one of us and somehow, in ways that are inscrutable to us, limited his knowledge of his own return. But here, it's a how much less argument. If the angels of heaven don't know, if the Son doesn't know, how much less do you know? How do you think that you can know if the angels don't know and not even the Son knows but only the Father? And then there is an illustration. This is not exactly a parable because you notice that the parables are generally made-up situations. They're they're illustrations of a sort, but they're made up. Um, Imagine this. A man goes on a far journey, or a man plants seed, or a woman needs bread. Or, uh, they're they're made-up situations, but before that, we have an illustration from history, and it is from Noah. It's from Noah. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, people were doing normal things, normal daily life things. They were eating, they were drinking, marrying, and giving, giving, being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then it says in verse 40, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. What were they doing? They were doing normal chores. And they were not being blamed for doing their normal chores. And you'll see that through this whole section. People were living their normal lives and doing their normal chores. But some doing their chores were ready and some doing their chores were not ready. Now, It's unclear here. It says that one will be taken and one left, and uh, it says that about the man, and it also says that about the woman. What is not clear is which one is is in the better situation. Is the one that's taken, is that one taken away for salvation, or is that one taken away for judgment and the one who's left is okay? 
And there are a couple different ways to read it. I tend to think in the context that the one who's taken away is the one who's taken away to judgment. Why? Because the example right before that was Noah. And so what happened? They were swept away. Noah was there in the ark with his family and the others. What happened? They were taken away. They were swept away to judgment. It's not entirely clear, but that that seems to make sense in this context. But however that might be, notice that there is a division here. All of them were doing their chores, their tasks, but some were taken away to salvation or to judgment, and the others were left for salvation or for judgment. And so what do we have here? We have in verse 42 the first instruction. The instruction is very clearly this, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So this stay awake must be metaphorical because none of us can stay awake the whole time, can we? We all have to sleep daily. And if we don't sleep during a whole day, we are miserable. Our bodies don't function. Our minds are unclear. We need to sleep. And so this is metaphorical. It's be alert. Be aware of what's going on. So that's the instruction. Now we have the three parables. And the first parable is a surprising comparison in verses 43 and 44, it's short, and Jesus compares himself to what? A thief, a thief. He compares the son to a thief. And he says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. That's, that's the parable right there. So Jesus compares his coming to the coming of a thief. Now, um, what's the point of comparison? Is Jesus like a thief? Well, he must be in some way. He must be in some way. And what is it? The, the, uh, the com- point of comparison is you don't know when the thief is coming. Thieves do not send you a text beforehand and say, at such and such a time, I'm going to knock on your door and I'm going to try to burglarize your house. They don't do that. Part of their, their, their job is to surprise And that's the point here. Just like the thief in the knife is a surprise, you do not know. Um, You need to be ready for when he comes. Verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you expect the thief, you have foiled the thief. He cannot do his thing. So be ready for the Son of Man. He's coming when you don't. That's the first one. Uh, He's coming when you don't expect. That's the first parable. Now, um, the thing is, it says to be ready, but it doesn't tell us how to be ready. And the, the next two parables help us understand that. And actually, the long parable at the end of this chapter 25 about the final judgment, the sheep and the goats, that will tell us even more how to be ready. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Now, the second parable uh, is in uh, verses 45 to the end of the chapter, and it's about a master setting his servant, uh, certain servants, over the whole household. So the master goes away. He says to the servants, hey, take care of the household in my absence. Give them their food at the proper time so that they have the nourishment, they have all that they need, and I'll be back. But he doesn't say when he'll be back. And so we have two servants. The first servant does exactly what the master said he should do. And it says, verse 45, Uh, Verse 46, blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So that master or that servant, no matter how long it took, he's simply doing what the master told him to do. And when he comes, the master will say, good job, blessed servant. 
and I will give you more responsibility, more work to do. And then there's the other servant who says, my master is delayed. When the cat's away, the mice will play. And that's what he's saying. I won't get caught. I won't get caught here. The master, he's, he's been along, gone a long time. He's going to be gone a long time. The, the, the possibility of him coming back anytime soon is, 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 is remote. And so what does he do? He begins to beat his fellow servants and to indulge himself. Instead of giving them to eat and drink, he eats and drinks with the drunkards in excess. But lo and behold, the master of that servant, verse 50, will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know. Here's the ignorance again. And the, the response will be severe. The punishment here is, is graphic and gory and terrible. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And then it's interesting that, that here in the parable, the metaphor is dropped. And it says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a favorite expression in the Gospel of Matthew to describe eternal punishment. Now, it, it looks like here that this parable is directed to people like me. It looks like this is directed to leaders in the church. Why? Because it's talking about those who are given responsibility to nourish the household, to care for the household. And uh, it is a, a call for those who have that responsibility, any sort of responsibility, whether it's teaching the children or whether it's uh, serving tables or whether it's teaching the gospel, the uh, preaching or whatever it might be, whatever responsibility that people have in the church, that, that gives them a greater responsibility and a greater liability to judgment. And it looks like there's a special place in hell for leaders of the church who take advantage of the flock and, and indulge themselves at the expense of the people. And there is a special blessing for those who are faithful to do what God has called them to do, to take care of the flock and to nourish the flock. And so what's the, what's the conclusion here? The same. Being awake and being ready, now we have an idea what that means. What's it mean? It means diligently doing what the Lord has told us to do. For how long? Until he comes or until you die. Just keep doing it. And by the way, the Christian life is, is easy to start in the United States. It's not easy to start in many parts of the world. In fact, in many parts of the world, when you start the Christian life and you're baptized, then you have just cut yourself off from your family, from society, from your employer, and so on. It's very costly to start the Christian life. In, in the United States, it's really easy to start the Christian life. You say, I'm a Christian. And you might find a church baptizing down at the ocean, and you just can show up and say, hey, will you baptize me? They'll baptize you on the spot, and, and it's all great. No commitment, no discipleship, no follow-up. Just declare yourself a Christian. It's easy to start. But it's hard to continue, and that's why many don't. Many who make a, a simple start to the Christian life in the United States and in the West don't continue. It's hard to continue here and anywhere else. And that's part of the point of these parables. How long do you keep need, need to keep doing what the master has told you to do? The rest of your lives or until he comes again. That's how you can be ready. And that's what the, the third parable, and particularly, particularly any responsibility you have in the church is a solemn charge to you. 
It is a, a responsibility. It's a privilege, of course. When people thank me for preaching, I say, you don't understand what a great privilege it is for me to get to, to, get to spend time during the week studying the Word of God and then teaching it to others, and then they even pay me to do it. I would pay for such a privilege, but I get paid for it. This is a great privilege, but it's also a very, very weighty responsibility for leaders in the church. And so do what you're supposed to do in whatever charge you have in the church to take care of others and not to take advantage of others. The third parable about the ten virgins. And here, what was the ten virgins' job? The ten virgins' job was to accompany the, the groom when he showed up to the next phase of the, the marriage feast. And marriage feasts lasted days. They were complicated affairs. There was a back and forth. There was arrival of the groom, the groom going to the bride's house, uh, going to the wedding feast, and so on. There was, there was a complicated affair. And so there were, there were a number of attendants there as well. And here in, in this marriage feast, there are 10 virgins, young women, maybe friends of the, the, the bride, we don't know, but it says they had one job to do. There are all sorts of memes about that these days, aren't there? You had one job to do. What's their one job? Accompany the groom in a procession to the next phase of the wedding feast. Oh, and by the way, it's going to take place at night. And so, to do your job correctly, what do you need? You need torches, and they all brought torches because they knew what their job entailed. Now let's pick it up there. It says they, they took their lamps, their torches. They went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. So they were semi-prepared. They were prepared for a short wait. They weren't prepared for a long wait. They were prepared for their job to do it for a while but they weren't prepared to do their job the entire time they were called upon to do their job. And so it says that in verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed, but the other, the wise, took their flasks filled with oil. The bridegroom was delayed, and they all became drowsy and slept. Now this is interesting because they fell asleep, but they're not, they're not blamed for falling asleep. In other parables, it says what? The other parable says stay awake. So stay awake because the thief is coming and you need to stay awake. But here it, it drops that idea and it says they fell asleep. They're not blamed for falling asleep. What do you do at midnight when you're tired? You fall asleep. So what were they doing? They were doing their normal activities. And there's a great deal of emphasis on doing the normal activities of human life. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. All the virgins rose trimmed their lamps, however that was, dipping it in the oil or pouring oil on it, lighting them back up, whatever it was, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish realized that they had a problem. They realized that their lamps were not going to make it for the whole procession. And so they say to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And then the wise say something that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it, at first, and, and, and unhelpful. They say, they say well... Um, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. That sounds a little bit harsh for their, their fellow uh, parade virgins in the, in the procession. But think about this. 
They were actually saying, if we give to you, we won't be able to do our job, and then nobody will do the job. There have to be at least some torches lit. And if we share it, there will be, eventually, before we get to our destination, there will be zero torches lit. So the one job that we were given to do, if we share with you, nobody will be able to do that job. So they say, well, hurry up, go and buy some oil from the dealers. They run off to buy oil, uh, oil from the dealers. The groom arrives, and it says in verse 10, they're, while they're going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And by the way, they didn't have watches. People arrived late in these cultures. That was not unusual to arrive late at things. They didn't have the same sort of ability to be punctual as we do. But surprisingly, he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Once again, the the judgment seems very harsh. This is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew we read about that. Back in chapter 7, verse 21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the second time we hear that. I, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. He's saying, you're not part of this feast. You were not ready to do the one thing I told you to do. Now, the, the conclusion to this is verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, this is a little bit curious, the translation here, because this word that they, they translate watch is the same word that we see in verse 42 and in verse 43. Therefore, stay awake. And in verse 43, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And so the translator struggled with this because what happened in this parable? What had all ten done? They had fallen asleep. And so it, it, it wouldn't seem to make sense to conclude this parable by saying, therefore, stay awake, because that wasn't the point of the parable. And so they translate it, watch, therefore. So in, in one of the parables, sleep is a bad thing. In the other parable, sleep is a natural, normal, human activity, And it becomes a metaphor, though, uh, and the metaphor is watch, be alert, be, be prepared, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Um, The emphasis is on doing what the Lord has called us to do through all of this, no matter how long we must living, keep living as Christians in the various areas of our lives. Um, So what's this mean? It means if you're a husband, love your wife and don't be harsh with her. For as long as you have to do that. If you're a child, it means uh, honor your mother and father as long as they live. If you're a church member, it means keep those promises that, that you made when you were baptized, when you were admitted into the church. If you're uh, a head of household, then provide for, for the people in your household. If you're a Christian, tell other people about the gospel so that they too might know Jesus. And, and, and so on and so on. It, it, these are not new things that are being presented here. You remember when Jesus uh, told his disciples, uh, when he gave them the Great Commission, he said, baptize 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All that I've commanded you. And the Lord has commanded us a number of things in, in different areas of our lives as, as brothers, as, as sisters, as church members, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as, as children, whatever it might be, as students and as teachers, whatever, whatever task God has given you to do, do those things faithfully that the Lord has told you to do so that when he comes, you'll be found doing those things that he told you to do. There is a, an urgency about this because there is that ominous statement here that in verse 10 of chapter 25, they went into the wedding feast and the door was shut. The door was shut. And once the door was shut, there was no more entrance. And I'm not sure if Jesus had in mind uh, the situation of Noah, but he just did mention Noah recently, didn't he? And if you remember back in the ark, what had happened? On the day when the floods came, that the, the, those who were in Noah's party and the animals were put into the ark. And then what does it say very clearly? That the Lord shut the door. And no one was getting admission after that point. And that may be the, the, the reference here. But however that might be, there, there will be a time after which there will be no more admittance. There will be a time when, when it's too late. And so there is an urgency about this. To, to enter, as one hymn that we sang last week, enter while there's room. Enter while there's room. The door is still open. Now, I have heard people describe growing up in Christian homes in which the return of Christ was presented as a constant threat to produce better behavior. I have friends who have said they grew up with this constant scolding, uh, and it went something like this. You wouldn't want Jesus to return and find you doing whatever it is the child's doing, saying this, doing that, not doing this. You wouldn't want Jesus to return and find you doing this or that. Now, certainly, there is a, an ominous, threatening aspect to these parables. That, that's not completely wrong. The parables do present the idea of, of this, this servant who went astray and then the master surprised him and cut him in two and so on. There is, there is that, that threat here. However, we ought not to miss the, the strong positive motivations that are throughout all of these parables. When some get taken and some get left, then you will be among those who are spared. When the thief comes to break into your house, your house will be safe. When the master comes and, and finds you doing what you're doing, you will be blessed and he will put you in charge of all of his possessions. And most delightfully of all, when he comes, you will get to accompany him into the marriage feast that will go on forever and ever and ever. And so, what's the takeaway? Pretty simple. Jesus has come already. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the dead. So believe in him to enter while there's room. And Jesus is coming again. So do what he has told you to do as long as you must until you die or until he returns. Let's pray. Our God, we, we pray that we would all be ready. 
not by doing some extraordinary thing, but doing the ordinary Christian things over and over and over. In whatever area of life we have a calling from you, Lord, enable us to fulfill that calling as friends, as church members, as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents, as teachers, as students, as workers, as employees, as employers, as retired people, as citizens, Lord, whatever it might be, whatever callings you have on our life, enable us to be found fulfilling those callings in the name of Jesus when he comes again. And we pray this in his name. Amen.